0: This episode is brought to you by Berkland Associates. Okay, so your company is growing fast. Stuff's moving a 1,000 miles a minute. It's exciting, but all that speed without the right systems in place can hurt you at scale. Enter Berkland Associates. Fractional CFOs, bookkeepers, tax and people ops experts. Berkland helps you build the right systems that can keep up with your growth and can handle all the finance, accounting, tax, and hiring services that consumer startups need to scale. From ensuring your fundamentals are sound to making sure you're prepared for the next funding round, Berkland Associates gets consumer startups. For more information, head to berklandassociates.com, and you can check out their toolkits for startups as well. Link is in the show notes. Today's episode is also brought to you by Skillful. Skillful runs online immersive programs that helps launch and accelerate careers in business roles in tech. Join one of Skillful's upcoming cohorts to learn what you need to know and from who you need to know. Skillful recently released their core sprint for January. Their core sprint is great for business generalists, anyone looking to get into biz ops and build their SQL and problem solving skills. They also have two additional sprints that will be dropping soon. Their strategic finance sprint for finance professionals looking to learn how to level up their experience for a strategic finance role and their product strategy sprint for professionals who currently work cross-functionally with a product team. Or if you want to understand how product strategy and business strategy intersect, no prior product experience is required. So early bird applications for their core sprint, that's the one geared towards business generalists, are now open. Use the exclusive code, Early Bird 2021, if you apply before December 1st. Head to joinskillful.com, also it's located in the show notes, before December 1st for access to an exclusive early bird pricing. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com. And more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Ari Abakas, for releasing highlights from 2021 every day during Hanukkah and during the 12 days of Christmas. Is a highlight from my conversation with Andy Dunn, who is the founder of Bonobos. Bonobos was one of the first DigiNator brands to ever exist. Bonobos Walmart for over three hundred million bucks. Ew. Here's Andy. What was some of that? customer feedback. I mean, of course, there's so many different pants companies out there. What was, I mean, yeah, just love to kind of hear like what were like some of the early feedback of of, like the product and maybe how that helped shape with like other iterations.
1: I remember Brian talking about it this way. The research from the guys that he talked to was, we don't like wearing pants because they don't fit that well. So we just wear jeans whenever we can. And I don't know if you remember this era uh, where the formal outfit was jeans and a blazer. (laughs) Like Guys were just defaulting to denim whenever they could. Um, Like Even when you'd go out at night, you were like jeans and a blazer, maybe a t-shirt, a button down. And I think what happened was in the 90s, the premium denim industry exploded. You had Seven for Mankind. Some brands have gone by the side. Rotten Republic, Ernest Zone, AG, which is still doing well. And the men's pants fit. Like khakis, wool pants that you'd wear to work, pants that pair with a suit just didn't keep up with what was happening in five pocket, five pocket being the the denim fit where you've got that actual extra coin pocket and denim was adding stretch. And so there were all kinds of ways where it was becoming a lot more comfortable and men's pants was lagging that. So that was Brian's first insight was guys don't like wearing pants. So they wear jeans whenever they can, unless they have to. That was number one. And number two, guys don't like shopping for pants. Right. So, you know, going in and trying to figure out what does fit is a pain in the neck. And those were Brian's insights. And then what he figured out was that there was a way to make a pant that had a curved waistband so that if it fit around your thighs, it also fit in the waist uh, versus just the typical straight fit. And growing up for him playing soccer and hockey, it, it just made more sense for that athletic build. And it turns out a lot of our friends at Stanford had the same problem. And so he started selling pants to our friends and they were buying it. And it was like, all right, well, first, this is a better fit. And then second, given that we're selling direct, maybe we can keep that rolling. And that was when we, when we developed the idea to, to build the brand on the internet, which uh, really didn't have a precedent, a purely digital direct consumer brand in 2007. There was no Warby. There was no Harry's. There was, you know, none of these brands existed. So we got to be the idiots to try to like blaze the trail on that. And we, we definitely had our, our share of mistakes along the way.
0: Isly Native 1.0. That's amazing. We talk a lot about on this show about at the early stage, you have to do things that don't scale. And of course, selling out of the trunk of your car, you know, things that scale. How did you expand to selling to people maybe outside of your your group? Was that online? Or were you also doing kind of trunk shows for people that or selling out of your trunk to people that you you didn't know, for example? How did you find those people? And at what point did you actually say, okay, we need to actually start doing activities or putting systems in check that actually do scale?
1: Yeah, there I love that concept of doing unscalable things in the early days. I think Bill Gurley articulates it really well in a conversation. Uh, with Patrick O'Shaughnessy on Invest Like the Best. And I remember listening to that conversation thinking, whoa, whoa, that's exactly what we did. It didn't really make sense at the time, but we were just selling pants to as many people as we could. I can remember going to a friend's wedding in LA and I just would, I had a duffel bag of pants that I would take out like to the the brunch on Sunday after the wedding. I just would roll around with a duffel bag of pants. And in retrospect, that was probably exceptionally rude to be like hawking pants at someone's wedding brunch. But people thought it was funny. He told me years later, people still called me the pants guy from that, like just traveling around selling pants. And I think the combination of in-person selling, doing these little pants parties, trunk shows, that got us a lot of word of mouth early when you combine it with the fact that I think it was a quality product. And we were known for having great customer service being really fast, which is part of the, we all now know the benefit of the direct model is you can... Actually, create a higher empathy, higher energy experience when you get to interact directly with customers. At that time, mostly over email. Now, of course, there's chat and a host of ways to connect. And that got a little bit of word of mouth going where I would say we then went to second degree connections. So when we decided to move to New York, I became a CEO, moved the business to New York. There was just this much bigger pool of guys who I think liked what we were doing with the brand. And so I started getting emails from different people. Um, Hey, can I try on the pants? And, you know, we built the e-commerce site. I think that was the first phase. And I like to tell founders now, you should be able to get your business to a million revenue run rate just on your own personal selling, right? Like you should be able to get to call it 30,000, 40,000 within six months, you know, per month. And then ideally, you know, 100,000 within a year just by the mouth that comes from in-person selling. And then at some point you just start thinking about, how you scale from there, and you know, for us, that that move to hiring a PR firm and amplifying the story of what we we're doing, and then as we extended the reach, there a company, a little company out of Palo Alto, uh, was introducing their advertising platform, which was Facebook, and that was 2008, and we were one of the first 50 advertisers on Facebook. Uh, and as we all know, there was definitely an era where that was an economical channel to scale. Before, by virtue of the company's success, it over time, depending on your business model, you know, got more expensive.
0: Why did you decide to move to New York when you already were at Stanford? You were in the Bay. You had the amazing resources kind of at your fingertips when it comes on on the technology side.
1: I had a meeting with an angel investor named Andy Ratcliffe, who since he and his wife have become um, close friends of our family. And I remember sitting with Andy at his office at Benchmark. He had left Benchmark, but still kept an office there and was giving him the pitch on Bonobos. And I was shocked when he said he wanted to invest. It was really taking aback, because most of his investments had not been in consumer, but he liked the pants. <laughs> he was a customer of the pants. And I think he liked the concept of going around the traditional distribution with this direct model. And I remember him saying, oh, I see in here you're moving to New York. How come? And I gave a list of reasons i was like well the pr industry for fashion is in new york there's a lot more retail talent there there's you know it's the fashion center fashion capital certainly of the u.s up there with you know paris and milan in the world uh designers merchants production people all there there's actually manufacturing in new york we were manufacturing at the time in san francisco and uh what might have been the last cut and sew manufacturing facility in the entire bay area They had like four people working there. And actually, New York City has a much bigger garment industry. So I went through all these reasons. I thought New York would be a place where brand and technology would collide, more so than the Valley, which is more technology-led. And then Andy heard me going through this list of reasons and finally said, well, where do you want to live? And I said, New York. And he goes, next time, just say that. (laughs) So uh, and I said, what do you mean? He's like, the company should be based where the founders want to live. And I think there was... There was some truth to that too. I had spent a couple of years in the Bay Area, wanted to meet someone, you know, a life partner as well at some point. And felt like New York would be a more more fun place to be. It actually turned out that that list of reasons, at least we can't run the Monte Carlo simulator and see what might have happened if we built the company in the Bay Area. There are some storied apparel companies in the Bay Area, like the the Gap family of brands, but it ended up it ended up being amazing building bonobos in New York. And as we've seen, the direct consumer revolution that has, you know, emerged over the last 13 years since we started it, um, most of which, most of which has been centered in New York, with an honorable mention to LA, the Bay Area um, is less relevant.
0: No, totally. And I mean, you were really there from the very beginning. Um, when you with that rise of New York and all these amazing, amazing Disney brands uh, coming out of New York. What was that like? being there you know, in the early days of that movement in New York?
1: It was bizarre because it wasn't clear that there was anything else happening in an entrepreneurial way. I remember hearing about companies, like people were talking about this company, Guilt Group, and that was growing quickly. And I was like, whoa, this is an e-commerce company in apparel, they're selling remnant inventory. I remember hearing about that. There was some talk about Etsy at the time, and that was kind of an interesting you know, marketplace coming up. And then I would meet people right when they were starting stuff. Like I, I remember meeting Jen Hyman and Jenny Flies from Rent the Runway when they were straight out of HBS talking to them about what they were doing. I can remember the Warby Parker founders, like the first time, um, you know, pre-launch, they came through Bonobos and we sat down and we had a meeting with them just to talk about them. We're like, oh, they're going to do this in eyewear. That's interesting. Like the try-on hurdle is even higher there. And I remember being like, I wonder if that worked. And we were fortunate, we became angel investors in the company and got to see that. I remember there not being any seed investors at all. And so we raised actually our first eight million of bonobos across four rounds. Um, this is all before we did a series A from over 120 different angels because there wasn't a seed ecosystem. You know, we're talking pre-Layer Ventures, pre a lot of the people that you now think about in New York. Now I feel like it's easy for founders. I, I mean, I know it's hard, but it was bananas because there were just wasn't there wasn't much. And the people that were building things didn't even know each other. It's just cool to think how much, how well New York's done uh, since then.
0: Yeah, no, totally, totally. We've had a couple other uh, folks on the show that were also kind of in those early pinnings in New York. And it just seems like a wild, wild time. Um, and almost unexpected, it seems, like not obvious. Now, probably looking back, it's probably obvious, but um, it just seems so much excitement back in those late 2000s, early 2010s. What are maybe some things that you thought you knew or have an understanding of and maybe just didn't quite, quite know?
1: I'd point to two things. One is we didn't know how to build the tech stack, and therefore we, over time, iterated a lot on the core platform and I think built too large of an internal team over time. Now there's this little company called Shopify, right? And i I dream of you know building a direct consumer brand in the Shopify era by comparison to what we did because people that write e-commerce software are rarely um, are rarely going to be as good inside of a co- one company that's doing it versus building it for an enormous ecosystem where the, the whole ethos of the company is around um, e-commerce software development. So the tech stack was a real struggle. And at one point we opened an office in California to try to solve it by hiring talent from there. And it turns out that that's, that was, there are a lot more engineers there and it's very competitive. Um, and that coming to a pants e-commerce company isn't, isn't the highest um, option on the list. And then when we did recruit people, which we were successful in doing most out of Netflix, it was very hard uh, to run a two office thing. And there's a separate conversation we could get into around how, I did a poor job of of running running a business where we had people who were excited about different parts of the business. I think tech was one challenge. The second, I think, was around something funny, which is not doing some things that we did later earlier, Uh, primarily being comfortable that the future of digital brand building wasn't only digital, it was digital-led and omni. And so we were five years in before we launched our guide shop model, which is our fit-to-ship, you know, inventory-light store model. I think there's now over 60. And we were maybe five years in before we launched our partnership with Nordstrom, uh, who are people who can be trusted with a great customer service experience, which was always our fear about doing wholesale. I think if we had done guide shops, our store strategy, and Nordstrom earlier, we would have built up much. Um, We would have had a much more rapid path to profits. We would have raised less capital because the paradox of direct consumer is it's actually a really bad business model um, standalone in most categories because the costs of marketing and free shipping both ways and returns, all these things actually create a big um, cost structure that make your unit economics challenging. And I think that's something underappreciated about D2C is it's, it's actually not that good of a business model in most categories.
0: How do you, because I know obviously you invest in, in companies as well, especially, you know, today. How do you advise or think about when entrepreneurs ask you how to approach maybe Omnichannel or going, you know, into retail versus setting up their own shop?
1: I usually zig to everyone, Zach, and say, I would actually go offline earlier, even from the beginning, if I could. I mean, I was speaking to an entrepreneur just last week who's got a really interesting idea in apparel. And I said, you should actually find a wholesale partner from launch. And he was like, wait a second. I thought we were going to be talking about D2C. Like you're, you know, he was flattering about it. He's like, you're the godfather of D2C and you're saying go wholesale. And I was like, I know too much. Like in the apparel category, wholesale actually can be your most profitable business. As long as you pick an enduring retailer to work with, that's well run, who cares about customers, which there aren't tons of, but they're out there. And I saw it when I was at Walmart after Bonobos was acquired. Some of the, you know, some of the best businesses were ones where there was a really big wholesale business, profitable, well run, combined with a great direct to consumer business. And what happens is if you have a large wholesale business side by side, you don't have to spend the same kind of marketing dollars on your direct to consumer business because the wholesale distribution, which by the way, is operating income positive, lower margin, gross margins, but higher operating income. Because uh, there's not a lot of exp- fixed costs you have to put against it, decreases your need to market. And so, if I asked you, what would you rather do, sell your product profitably in another channel to market it, or spend money on this lifetime value to CAC fantasy? <laughs> um, you know, if you have the right partner, I think the former is a, a solid strategy. So, I, I would do that earlier. And I think. I also love this concept of like running your brand out of your own store out the gates. Like, if you've got to pay for store, if you've got to pay for corporate real estate anyway, you might as well just run the company out of your own store and get your own vertical store experience going. And and I've done that with a couple of businesses I'm involved with where we've actually launched the company in our headquarters combo store. And that's been fun because you get to see the customer and iterate and experiment with what might become your own four wall retail model.
0: How did you develop the concept for guide shops because that was I mean truly re- remarkable as well?
1: It was one of these like beautiful happy accidents things. We had built a couple of these fit pods that we thought we would take remotely and take them to a bar event and have people try on pants. And we had these things fabricated in New Jersey and they weighed hundreds of pounds. Like it they were the least modular hardest thing to transport ever. And so we just stuck them In our offices, like not far from the lobby. And then when we were running a test pilot to figure out the fit of our shirts, we were trying to figure out whether or not to go into a second category. And we saw similar challenges on the fit of a woven button down shirt. We invited a bunch of people, I think on Twitter, we called it the dress shirt alpha. Then wanted to come in and try on our shirts. And guys started coming into our offices in New York. And we had these fit pods that were designed to be mobile, but weren't very mobile and next thing we knew, guys were trying on shirts. They're so like, yeah, these shirts are okay. Here's some feedback, but can I try on some pants? And so we started like bringing our pants through. We had some inventory, and and guys would be like, I want to buy them. And we we're like, well, we don't have any here. Like, no, 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 but just ship them to me, right? And so all of a sudden, we built this little fit to ship lab in our headquarters. And next thing we knew, we were doing a million revenue run rate out of our lobby. And it's like, wait a second, we can't ignore this. Like we're excited about the direct-to-consumer internet model, but you're doing a million of sales out of your lobby from guys coming in trying on pants. That became something that we just couldn't ignore. And that was when we realized, like, let's now test this out you know, in standalone locations. And we did a test on Newberry Street in Boston, but we were scared of the cost of real estate. So we did it in the third story of a building and barely anyone wanted to do that. And then we finally said, all right, let's try a street-level store. We got the confidence and and I think we had one on Armidale Street in Lincoln Park, and one in Katie's Alley in DC. And they started doing really well. And that was the beginning of realizing, okay, we we don't need to be afraid of real estate. You need to you need to get the right real estate at the right price, ground level. And next thing we knew, we were building building stores. It was a different kind of store, but they were stores for sure.
0: Now you're working on something in stealth. Do you have any hints of or any teas in terms of what you're actually currently working on?
1: I'll tell you this, it's around this idea of of eliminating loneliness and helping people in a non-healthcare way improve their mental health. So it's got it's got everything to do with mental wellness, but nothing to do with a mental wellness product. And so we'll be we'll be in the app store in not that long with a password protected alpha. Um, it's named after an important part of a Thanksgiving meal. And I think if we do this the right way, a lot of people are going to love it, but let's get it live and make sure that a few people love it first.
0: I'm excited. I'm really, really excited for it. And given also like the year that we've had, it, it couldn't be more make sense as well that that this is the absolute perfect time for it, it seems. Since of course, with everything that we've, that we've been through during COVID. Um, what's one book that has inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: I could answer this in a way where those are pretty similar answers, but let's split it up. I think that Moneyball... Michael Lewis is one of my favorite books professionally because it's about so it's about baseball. It's about Billy Bean of the A's and someone coming in with a data driven approach to a pretty intuition and scout driven uh, industry and finding a way in a business that's built on a very unlevel playing field where the payrolls are, you know, I think whatever it is, Tampa Bay Rays ones for twenty five million and the Yankees for two hundred and fifty. So if you think about having to compete in a sport like that, it actually is analogous in some ways to startups where you just don't have the resources and how do you, how do you win? And so I loved I loved that book. First of all, because Michael Lewis is a great writer. And because the theme of it is um, you can unlock ways to win by being contrarian uh, and doing things that other people aren't doing and might criticize you for. And I think from this conversation, I think that's a, a theme we could draw from the startup journey, right? Which is um, being contrarian, whether VCs are willing to back you or not. So I love that book professionally. Personally, I love Atonement by Ian McEwen. It's a novel. I think it became a decent movie starring Karen Knightley, but I recommend the book over the movie. And I think what I love about it is, when I think about what makes human beings fundamentally incredible, it's Empathy, our ability to imagine the world from the perspective of another person, whether we choose to deploy that or not in this age of tribalism and division is is still our choice. The capability is there. I'm reminded of the Love Your Enemy speech by Dr. King that I try to read whenever I'm feeling particularly angry on Twitter. And Atonement is a great book at just immersing yourself in empathy and uh, what it means to imagine the world from the perspective of of another person, which I think is the hardest thing to do, but uh, the capability that we are most uniquely suited to.
0: No, I, I really appreciate you sharing uh, both of those and, and really excited to add them to our uh, our book list. Um, my final question to you is, what's your one piece of advice for founders who are currently building a business?
1: I think that it's okay to be vulnerable. And I think it's important to have a segmentation of who you're vulnerable with, right? Right. And so I think vulnerability does draw your team in, but your team also wants to know that they're going to win. So there's only so much of your own uh, psychological journey that you want to tax them with. They've got a, enough work to do. I think with a close member of your leadership team, there's um, or a co-founder, you can be more transparent. But then I think it's really important to find someone, and there's a lot to be said for loved ones and friends and family where I'm going with this is it's really important to find someone in your orbit, whether it's a therapist or an executive coach, psychiatrist or some other form of spiritual advisor, healer, someone who you can be 100% unvarnished with about your insecurities and your fears, your anxieties, your, your jealousies, your rage, all these human emotions that tend to be bottled up because founders are meant to be these beacons of positive energy and contagious, positive thoughts and find a way to process those other emotions. And, and so I I think it's okay to ask for help. And in fact, I would actually say it's not okay. It's, it's important to seek it out and find the right person to have that experience with the same way that you approach going out and getting the right senior iOS engineer or the right CFO. You should be equally ambitious about getting the best, uh, counselor, counselor, area, whatever you want to call it that you can.
0: Totally. Because then that also means your overall performance and your overall health and wellness. I mean, that's also tied to it too. And then also just, you know, it's obviously important to make the right hire and to, and to get, you know, the best people in your team, but also to make sure that you're a hundred percent right. Right. Um, and doing the types of things that actually will help your, um, you, to make sure your mental health is in check and to keep you, you know, on a great path. Andy, this has been so much fun. Thanks again for your time.
1: Yeah, this is amazing. Really glad to be with you. I appreciate it.
0: And there you have it. It was terrific chatting with Andy. You can follow him on Twitter at Dunn. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.